0: Salam, everyone. I'm sure, like you, another week like this is very frustrating for me to hear once again about the incredible violence that um, just a few people can inflict on the, on, really on the world, most especially on those folk in Southern California this time, but who knows where it'll be in the next And, you know, our instinct, I don't know about your instinct, but my instinct is I want want to do something about that. You know, we all want to pick up a gun or send our armies out there and start, you know, blasting. And that would uh, be a normal and uh, almost, we would think, at least justifiable response. After all, these people are doing evil things to innocent people. But is that the the right way? You know, our response, our desire for the response of vengeance comes from our desire to control events. That's where it comes from, most especially. And it is the Lord our God who says, "Vengeance, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So that leads us to a, a question, an issue of what is a, the appropriate response to all of this stuff and beyond that to the judgment of God. In the portion I want to look at today Romans 2, 1-16 if you have a Bible and you want to follow you, you can do that I'm especially looking to focus on verse 2. In verse 2 it says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Paul is just, you know, giving us a litany of all the bad things that are going on in the world, at least in the world of the pagans, as he described it, the Roman world that he lived in. And he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on them. He's talking mostly about the Gentile world there, although he's going to expand that to the entire world. But this raises a question, and it raises a question in the world in which we live. Because, listen, there are seven and a half billion people in the world. Of those seven and a half billion people, maybe two, two or two and a half billion of them are even remotely agree that they believe in God, in the God of the Bible. That leaves a whole lot of people who don't. And yet God says he has the right, that, or at least Paul is telling us that God says he, his judgment rightly falls on them who do such things. So, you know, is it true is God justified in bringing his wrath on an unrepentant and disobedient world? Maybe, maybe the question is the wrong question. Maybe the question is not that he's justified, but that he has the right as the creator and sustainer of the universe to do precisely what he thinks is right whenever he chooses. So it raises the question, the issue of authority versus autonomy. Is man totally, a a totally autonomous creature, capable all by ourselves, by means of our own power to provide for and sustain our existence? Or are we? as part of the created order, dependent on, on a higher power. Which is it? You know, if you ask most people, they would say, listen, we, we built our towers of Babel. We're doing just fine. And we don't need a God who judges. In his book, The Reason for God, Timothy Keller who has written this book as, basically as an apologetic book. If you're looking for apologetics, this is the book to look for, to, to read. It's, it's quite good. And, uh, and by the way, he has, a, he has a huge congregation in New York City. I forget the name of it, but it's uh, Redeemer. Thank you. Okay. He wrote this book, The Reason for God. And in it, he quotes from uh, a book called The Habits of the Heart, by a man named Robert Bella. And he says, in in this book, uh, Bella speaks of the expressive individualism that dominates American culture. In his book, Bella notes that 80% of Americans agree with the statement an individual should arrive at his or her own own religious beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. You don't need anybody. Everybody, religion is a matter of personal preference. It's an inner matter, right? It's, it's about me and my kishkes, how I feel. He concludes that moral truth is relative to individual consciousness. Our culture, therefore, has no problem with a God of love who supports us no matter how we live. Thus, people can justify, justify murdering 15, 16 individuals, blowing up buildings, running planes into them do all kinds of stuff, blow up, even blow up Planned Parenthood places, all the other things that happen. In the name of God, because, you know, listen, God agrees with me. God agrees with my perspective on the world, whoever you think God is. So we have no problem with a God of love who supports us no matter how we live. It does, however, object strongly to the idea of a God who punishes people for their sincerely held beliefs, even if they're mistaken. You see, listen, I'm a nice guy. I don't preach much on judgment because I believe that God is a God of love who is not looking to judge the world, but rather to save it. And I want to spend more of my time trying to save people than to tell them they're going to hell. But every once in a while, we need a reminder of the consequences, the consequences that are ours if we simply refuse. So get ready. I'm gonna talk to you from Paul's perspective. Paul says that there is a problem. He says the problem is that we do not acknowledge God. Earlier in chapter 1, he said, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures and whatever whatever else we can imagine. That's the problem. If we do not acknowledge God as the one who sustains us, our every breath, why do we think we need to be accountable? We have a problem with authority, people. All of us do. Every one of us buckles at it. And we think it's a virtue that we cannot listen to another. That we're so smart that we have it so much together that no one should be able to tell me what to do. I can live all by myself. I can completely sustain myself in the universe I live in by the power of my knowledge and the strength of my, my hand. No, you cannot. You know, I was, uh, while I was looking through this, <laughs> I, uh, I came upon this little factoid about the universe. So there's something uh, in, the, in the universe called dark matter. How many of you have heard of this, right? Dark matter, right? Okay. I don't think it's a, another TV series. It's, uh, it's actually something, something else. So let me read you this definition of it, if, if, if you could, you'll indulge me, just for a moment. I'm going to make a point with this, I promise It says dark matter is a hypothetical kind of matter that cannot be seen with telescopes but accounts for most of the matter in the universe. The existence and properties of dark matter are inferred from its gravitational effects on visible things, on radiation and on this large-scale structure of the universe. I mean, it actually, they must be able to measure how it pulls on things. Dark matter has not been detected directly, making it one of the greatest mysteries in modern astrophysics. Dark matter is estimated to constitute 84.54% of the total matter in the universe, while dark energy, which is similar to dark matter, makes, constitutes 95% of the total mass energy content of the universe. In other words, about 90-95% of all stuff in the universe is dark matter. We constitute nothing. Nothing. Nothing in terms of what the universe is made of. So there are a number of theories about how the universe holds together, you know, and I, I'm not going to go through all of the ones I saw. But uh, let me just say, uh, let me sum up this one, which says the, pro- the problem is this, that the universe is spreading out, at least this is how they measure it, right, with redshift and all this other stuff, you know, when they measure moving objects, and the universe is moving out from all of itself. And there's a problem that we may meet, we might meet a critical point where everything would fly apart. Except for the fact that there is dark matter. Which they can't even, they don't even know what it is. And yet it gives enough mass to the universe to hold it together. Summing it up in, a, in an article, one article by this man, George Lemaitre, he says, survival depends crucially on dark energy and suggests a reason why its density is small and positive today. That dark energy and dark matter hold the universe together. We don't even know what it is, but we know somehow it's keeping us here. We think we are in control we control nothing. It's God who is in control. God who is making it, the world spin round and round. I mean, I know there are lots of factoids about how is it possible that in all the known universe that we've examined so far, we're the only planet that can sustain life because we are precisely as far away from the sun as we need to be. And we, the, the pl- mass of the planet is precisely what it is, so it can sustain life as we understand it. You know, it's not too big, it's not too small, and so on and so on. Come on, give me a break. Somebody give me a break. It's not by coincidence, it's by the fact that we have a God who is the Creator. Baruch Sheamar Vehayahaolam. Baruch Hu. We say that that's not by accident. Because before anything else can happen, we have to acknowledge that we serve the one living God. And not a God who is willing to let us do whatever we want, shoot whoever we want, blow up whoever we want, and call it righteous or holy. This is not the God of the Bible. But he is also a God of judgment. And that, too, is a fact. So, is that what God wants? Paul tells us in this chapter 2, he says, you suppose, old man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? He warns us that judgment belongs to him. See, what's happening in the world is everybody's judging everybody else according to their own standard. And when they don't meet it, they judge them with an automatic weapon or a bomb or something like that. Maybe we ought to take the automatic weapons and the bombs away from people. Don't you think? I think so. About time we regulated that nonsense. I know somebody's disagreeing with me in their head already, but you're wrong. And I'm, I'm very serious about it, you're wrong. You see, we cannot judge others because God is the judge. He goes on to say, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's what God wants. He doesn't want to blow up the world. He doesn't want to kill you or me or anybody else. What he wants us to do is to come to him. Because in him we will find life in him we'll find the joy that we hope for, the utopia that we long for, that we keep trying to strive for but never do because we keep leaving out the key element, which is him. We build these monuments to ourselves and they're always missing something. He goes on to say, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up, for your, up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When God does finally judge, it's not going to be for lack of effort in trying to get people to repent. It's going to be because we had nothing better that we wanted other than to be judged by him. And he says, listen, this is all dependent on what you do, not what you think. Listen, (laughs) whether you agree with these maniacs or not, most of these people who are doing this blowing up stuff, they are absolutely convinced they're doing the right thing. I don't think there's a one of them doesn't think, unless they're psychopaths altogether, which may be true. You know, they all think in, you know, they you know, they all have their manifestos, claiming they're righteous, that their righteous acts are approved by God. They're doing everything right. And they're sadly mistaken, because there is a God who will render to everyone according to his deeds what he does, what she does, not what you think. Let's remember that. You know, there are are a lot of people who have the name of Messiah on their lips and are going straight to perdition. Messiah Yeshua even said it. He'll say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And he'll say, get away from me. I never knew." That's going to be a disappointing day. But to those who persevere in doing good, and seeking for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. We do good according to God's standards of what is righteous, kindliness, loving kindness, mercy. These are the qualities of God that we emulate. Don't blow things up. We lay down our lives. Listen, I'll die for what I believe, but I will not kill for it. I will not. that's a person who honors god so right now though i want to take revenge i want to you know let's go out there and blow them all up i will not nor will i advocate it because there is a god who will judge and i have to trust that he is righteous in his judgment Because according to this scripture, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. The Jew first and also the non-Jew. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's a day of judgment coming, you know, and it is sure and true. Most of you probably know the story of Lazarus and the rich man it's in chapter 16 of the book of Luke. And you know the story. It's a, there's a rich man who's, uh, you know, the way he's portrayed, he's a pretty arrogant fellow, and he, lives, and he has this poor man who sits on his steps, and he does nothing to help him. He just leaves him there in his misery, while this man enjoys all the wealth that he's accumulated over the years. And he is happy as a clam until that day when he cannot even take his socks with him. And off he goes. It says he went to Hades, hell, however you describe that. And Lazarus, of course, is in the bosom of Abraham, whatever that might be. Seems like a nice place. Abraham is there. The patriarchs are there. He's enjoying life, or whatever that is, whatever that existence might be. And remember, the, the, the rich man says some, some interesting things. You know, But there's one thing, interesting thing that he does not say. I'm going to get there. Let's see what he says. He says... He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so he can dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for him in agony in this flame. He still looks at at, at Lazarus as a servant. Send a boy over here with a cup of water for me, would you? But Abraham reminds him that during your life, you got your good stuff and Lazarus bad. Now he's comforted here. and You're over there. And besides, us all this between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from there, here to there will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. He goes on and says, I, you know, I send somebody to my father's house, and my brothers don't show up here, because here's the deal: you didn't give me enough information to not to wind up here. Oh no, no, no! We gave you Moses and the prophets. Well, no, 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 it's better if you send somebody from the dead. Then they'll believe it. And they won't believe it even then. (laughs) And they haven't. Told you. You know, there are two two billion people who call themselves Christians or whatever form of belief in Jesus you might subscribe to. In In a world of seven and a half billion. They have not believed, even though someone rose from the dead. So he asks all these questions. Makes all these requests, but one thing he doesn't do. He doesn't say to Abraham, get me out of here. Please, I beg, get me out. He doesn't ask for that. A cup of water? You think there'd be something more? Well, again, our friend... um, our friend T- Timothy Keller is uh, commenting on this, this particular parable of Messiah Yeshua. And this is what he says. He says, he's speaking about the rich man first. And he says, he's only called rich man. Strongly hinting that since he had built his identity on his wealth rather than on a God. Once he lost his wealth, he lost any sense of his self. So we're going to just talk about what hell is. Because I'm not sure it's like, you know, Dante described it, you know, as a fiery place with nine circles, one worse than the next, and all kinds of punishments going on and all that other stuff. I think hell is a self inflicted place. It says, in short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. It's not a place, it's a state of being. A state of being. We see this process writ small in addiction, for instance. First, there's disintegration, because as time goes on you need more and more of the addictive substance to get an equal kick, which leads us less and less, leads to less and less satisfaction. Second, there's isolation as increasingly you blame others and circumstances in order to justify your behavior. No one understands. Everyone's against me. That's muttered in greater and greater self-pity and self-absorption. When we build our lives on anything but God, that thing, even if it's a good thing, becomes an enslaving addiction. Something we have to, be, have, to have to be happy personal dis- disintegration happens on a broader scale in eternity and in it, and in eternity this this di- dis- inter- excuse me this disintegration goes on forever God gave you over God gave them over to precisely what they long for and once you're given over it goes on and on and on and on Into infinity. You want to know what hell is? That's it. Infinitely more distant from God. Infinitely more lost in in yourself. With no identity. Who am I? Until you lose all sense of self. He doesn't even have a name anymore. Personal disintegration happens on a broader scale. In eternity, the disintegration goes on forever. There's increasing isolation, denial, delusion, and self-absorption. When you lose all humility, you are out of touch with reality. No one ever asks to leave hell. That's the problem. That's the judgment when we choose to live apart from God and his ways, when we choose our own way, we become entirely separated from him and ultimately from ourselves. And imagine this in an eternal state. When you're shuffled off this mortal coil only to live in the next. Eternally isolated. Eternally longing and not even a cup of water to quench your thirst. There is a judgment and we need to face it and to realize that we have to acknowledge God in our lives and all the little things of our lives because too many of us, even us in here, we have too much of our own stuff that we long for that takes the place of God in our life, that will allow him control I love Dorothy's little uh, drush. Joseph was completely out of control because he was a young man who liked control. And God placed him out of control so that God could take control of his life. And when he did, he advanced him to the highest place. And The same would be true for us as a people, as a world. We could realize ourselves, instead of waking up every morning wondering what horrible thing is going to happen today, imagine humanity realized fully. Because I refuse to believe that we are just evil, made in the image of God, Then it cannot be so. There is beauty in the world, and we have to recapture it. And make it the point of existence. So that we don't have to live day by day in fear and loathing. At the end of this portion, in in the letter to the Romans, it says in verses 11 and following, it says, There is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without it. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are justified before God, but the doers will be. That's our hope that we emulate God in the doing of His word. That's the only way. Are the Jew a Gentile? And we know there are certain standards for the Jewish people and others for the nations. But there is a character to the scripture that should form our character, kindness, mercy, justice, not judgment, self-sacrifice, generosity, peace, and love. Against these there is no law. May we all learn to fulfill it. May the world learn to fulfill it. One last thing. If we are going to believe that God is our righteous judge, that he has the right to judge, and that he will judge, then let us not be people who advocate Mm -hmm. revenge. May God be the righteous judge of all that happens when we place it in his hands. Amen.